Hello, I'm Mark Petruzzi, host of Selling the Cloud podcast. And I'm Ray Reich, your co-host of the show. We talk to a wide variety of cloud and SaaS industry thought leaders and revenue generation experts who share their unique insight into what is required to build and grow a great business in the cloud. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Selling the Cloud podcast. I'm your host, Ray Reich, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mark Petruzzi. Hey, Mark. Hey, Ray. And we are also very fortunate to be joined today by Chris Beal, a longtime professional and personal friend and the CEO of Connect and Sell. And today with Chris, we'll be covering three main areas. First, outbound prospecting. Really, is cold calling dead in 2022 and beyond? Second, fear of the phone. How do we help early career XDRs, SDRs, BDRs master the power of the phone? And third, the key metrics to track in outbound prospecting. Chris, please take a moment to give a brief background of your journey to becoming a guest on the Selling the Cloud podcast. Sure, right. Mark, great to be here. I'm Chris Beal. I'm CEO of Connect and Sell. I've been in the company for about 10 years. I've been around building companies for 42 years. And I've become increasingly convinced that the human voice is the most powerful thing in business. And uh, I think there's a lot of good mathematical reasons and psychological reasons for that. And it'd be fun to go into that stuff. Okay, well, that was a very humble introduction, but you've got not only amazing experience, but insights to millions and millions of phone calls and what's working. So let's start with this concept. Cold calling is dead. It's all about social media engagement. That's the key. You've got to personalize your outbound emails based upon the deep research you're going. you got to hang out on LinkedIn for an hour and see what your target buyers are saying. And you want to engage yourself in those conversations. Why is the phone or cold calling not a top idea in 2022, Chris? Well, I think it's it's been going uh, into the not top idea category ever since it got hard to get people on the phone, which is about 2005. So what happened was we had this, I'll call it the voicemail revolution, where folks got these voicemail systems from Octel and BMX and companies like that. And for a while, they just used them internally. They're like an internal memo. Remember those things you used to send a little envelope, but you know, you put the person's name on it. It's got a mail stop. I'm too young for that, Chris. <laughs> Part of the audience is going, what the hell is this guy talking about? Anyway, people needed to talk to each other internally. Voicemail was good to do that. But most voicemail systems were locked from the outside. You needed a code to get in, right? And the reason was storage was expensive. So those voice messages cost a lot of money to spin on disks back then because disks were expensive. Then disks got cheaper, cheaper, cheaper really fast through the 99 to 2003, 2004 period. And Octel and VMX convinced their customers to open up their voicemail systems to the outside world. And they did it to make money, of course, which is why we often do things in companies. For those of you confused by what drives us, sometimes when we're running companies thinking stuff up, it's to make money. I just want to, I want to shock the audience with that one. So oh, what happened was salespeople figured it out. Hey, I have a new channel to get a hold of people who don't answer the phone the first time. And I don't want to talk to their admin. I'll punch out, they call it, and go to the voicemail system. Zero out, right? Well, because most folks who are serious buyers had admins back then. That's another thing that was probably was a shock to most people, right? So, so what happened to our behavior? Well, caller ID showed up the same time universally. 
and the behavior of people receiving phone calls is to let them go if you don't recognize it. And by the way, even if you do, let them go to voicemail and then voicemail answering, voicemail checking behavior essentially went to zero over a three-year period. So it got really, really hard in a mechanical sense. That is, you had to dial more, navigate more phone systems, talk to more gatekeepers, and hang up on more voicemails if you wanted to talk to serious decision makers. They were suddenly protected by their own behavior, which is, hey, let it go to voicemail, right? And then don't check it. So that's what happened. And I think that's really what got people thinking, hey, there's got to be a better way. Meanwhile, email was on the ascendant. And so why not use email? And, you know, it was only a little while later that email got called spam. And, you know, then it got called worse things than spam. You put adjective in front of spam if you're receiving too much of it. And uh, it's one of those common adjectives that people will use sometimes. And so you had this opportunity, I think, to kind of have a gold rush in email. And that gave the, the idea, a good idea, that, hey, there's another way. The problem with the other way, and this is why people say that cold calling is dead, is they think email works the same as cold calling, as a phone conversation. And so they go, well, I got you an email. Isn't that just like talking to you? And that became the substitute. And meanwhile, calling people has always been scary. And it's scary because when you call somebody, you have a bad feeling that you're doing a bad thing to them. And when you get called, you have the feeling that somebody's doing a bad thing to you. They're interrupting you, and they're an invisible stranger. We have a deep, deep inherent, and I mean inherent from who knows how long ago, way back, 50,000 years, 100,000 years or whatever, fear of invisible strangers. Invisible strangers are the people from across the river. They are not good people. They paint their faces horizontally, and every civilized person paints their face vertically. You know, it kind of reminds you of a Super Bowl season, right, where you, you can tell who the bad people are by by what they wear and how they paint their faces. So if they're invisible, it means it's nighttime in the environment of evolution and they're in our village right now. They're worse than tigers, they're worse than snakes, they're worse than falling. They are here to spill some blood and change our demographics. We don't like it. And when we cold call somebody, we are one and we know it. So we don't like it. So we're afraid of it. So I think mostly people say cold calling is dead, not because they have any facts. Facts are hard to come by. We have some. 60 million dials a year, delivering 3 million conversations for folks reaching out to senior people who buy stuff, right, in business. So we're pretty sure we've got facts, but, you know, we're pretty sure that people who don't like receiving cold calls say cold calling is dead. People who are afraid of making them say it's dead. People who have something to sell that is an alternative say it's dead. And that's a lot of people. Chris, you gave us a lot to chew on. Mark, I'm going to let you take the first chance. What do you want to follow up on and ask Chris? Wow. Well, Chris, I guess, and Ray kind of alluded to this, but in some ways, you are gong, chorus, abiso, any conversational intelligence system personified, because you really, you have all this data, you have all these firsthand experience in that brain of yours, which is just incredible. So when, when you talk about the challenges, you know, of, of how things have evolved, and you describe 60 million calls, uh, driving 3 million conversations in a year. How does that compare to the past? And really, when it comes down to it, you know, how powerful are those 3 million conversations today in driving sales and business you know, throughout the world? Uh, it's a, that is a superb question. So first of all, the basic facts are it takes about 60 million fully navigated calls to get 3 million conversations. And that's what we do, by the way. Connect and sell, 
we do all that navigation. So our customers just get the 3 million conversations. And so instead of an hour of dialing a navigating phone system, you push a button, you talk to somebody. Not too hard to push a button, still scary, still scary. You're still the invisible stranger. But for the folks who learn how to handle the first seven seconds of a cold call, they can actually produce trust 100% of the time. And if you think about B2B, the issue with B2B is the buyer is cautious. The buyer is cautious because they're risking their career, not their money. So I can buy a Tesla for myself. And if I find out I'm allergic to electricity, and I got to get rid of that Tesla, right? That thing is like literally burning a hole in my body or something. I can dump it. Maybe I'm out 10 grand, right? If, if I do a quick sale on my Tesla, do the same thing with the $70,000 system for my company. And I find out that my company's allergic to the system and I made the decision to bring it in. I got a career issue right there. I'm risking my kid's college education. I'm risking my retirement. I'm risking my reputation. B2B buyers are very, very risk averse. And they have a threshold of trust that must be cleared by at least one seller before they'll buy. They have to trust one seller more than they trust themselves because the seller is an expert and they're not. I mean, you don't buy from non-experts. That's idiotic, right? And the seller is always a specialist. The buyer is always a generalist. And the generalist must always trust the specialist. It's like when you go to a doctor, you can't actually independently diligence everything the doctor says. That's why they're the doctor. You have to put yourself in their hands. And the seller in the world of B2B is the doctor. So how do you get that trust if you start out as a stranger? Well, I asked Chris Voss that question. I asked him one night at dinner. I said, so Chris, how long do we have to get trust? Everybody might not know Chris Voss, but he's the author of Never Split the Difference, FBI hostage negotiator for many, many years. And I think the clearest thinker, experiencer, and elucidator for all of us on what's going on inside that person and what should I do, right? I said, how long do we have to get trust in a cold call? And he says, seven seconds. I jumped. Most people don't answer questions that fast. And I, I said, seven seconds. That's funny because our research says eight seconds. He says, your research is wrong. It's seven <laughs> seconds. I said, okay. So what do we have to do to get trust in those seven seconds? He says, oh, that's easy. All you have to do is show the other person that you see the world through their eyes. We call it tactical empathy. And then you need to demonstrate to them you're competent to solve a problem they have right now. And I thought for a second, I said, isn't the problem they have right now me? And he says, bingo, that's why you're in charge. You're in complete control of a cold call because you're the one who did the interrupting and you induced fear in the other person. And by so doing, you've actually put energy into the conversation, their fear that you can harness to get what you want, trust, which will allow them to listen to you long enough to get what you really want, curiosity, which could actually get them to decide to come to a meeting with you. So that's why cold calling works is those seven seconds are perfectly under your control. Now you have to learn how to do it. It's like a magic trick, not a hard one. It's like, I don't know, two ball juggling, right? There's only two parts, not three. Plus, well, that's typically I like to dig right into the numbers. We're going to get there. So seven seconds, there's fear. You need to disarm that fear and take advantage of it. Do you have any best practices or techniques? Is there one way or are there multiple ways to really maximize that first seven seconds? There must be thousands. I mean, to come up with something where you accomplish the two sub goals and to let them see the world, or let them know you see the world through their eyes. That's the hard one, by the way, because that's what no sales rep wants to say. I'm the problem. You are the problem. You have to own up to being the problem. Nobody wants to do that. So it's awkward. right? So it's not really so much technique. 
it's choosing something that works. So we teach a technique. I have this little shirt on. It says flight school there. So we teach something that you could run a connect and sell flight school with live experience a bunch of different ways. We just had to choose one. And what we teach people to say is this, Ray, I know I'm an interruption. Can I have 27 seconds to tell you why I called? Now that's done in two different voices, which makes it hard. Chris said, wow, that's really something. You switch your voice from a hard, flat self-indictment voice to a playful, curious voice, just like that. A come along with me voice. And you accomplish both goals. You show them, you see the world through their eyes. I know I'm an interruption. Not, oh, I know I'm a bit of an interruption. Oh, it's entirely possible that I'm interrupting your day. It's not that. You're not asking for permission. You're not apologizing. You're stating a flat, mutually agreed to fact, which is that you're a bad thing. And then you switch to a playful, curious voice and offer a solution to the problem right now. The problem is they want to get off the phone with their self-image intact. So give them a way to do that by listening to you for 27 seconds. And that's really the key. That's, I'll call it the 95% key. And people who learn to do it, I'm looking at my own team. So if you want numbers, my own team yesterday went through flight school. So this was my team of, let me count them up, the manager plus eight SDRs, right? So they, they did a, a two-hour flight school session yesterday. And they do this regularly. Once a quarter, they go back through flight school. And their stats went from 0.5 meetings per rep hour. That is the metric that everybody should be paying attention to. I don't think anybody else measures. So half a meeting per hour of prospecting by a rep, right? One meeting per two hours is world-class. And they jumped that up by getting instruction live and getting coaching live as they had real conversations. They jumped it up to 0.78 meetings per rep hour. Now, at 0.78 meetings per rep hour, if a meeting is worth roughly, say you could buy meetings for a thousand bucks, right? That's what BAO tends to sell meetings for. So if you're buying them for a thousand, they must be worth three. So a meeting's worth about three grand to your company. I mean, everybody's different, but say you have a one in five shot at turning a meeting into a product with an ACV of 15,000, right? Pretty low ACV. In the cloud, that, that's probably a little low, but let's say that's the case, then a meeting is worth three grand. And so a three grand meeting is obtained, at least set on the books, once every two hours. So you pay a rep 50 bucks an hour, you paid $100 to the rep in order to get a $3,000 asset. That's like Bitcoin mining, but better, right? Because price is actually a little, like you've you got arbitrage, if you're doing Bitcoin, you don't, you're part of the problem and part of the solution. In this case, you're literally printing money. And if somebody wants to know, like, is cold calling dead or not? It's not relevant. What's relevant is, what is the alternative thing that that rep could be doing for those two hours to get more than one meeting? Or in my rep's case, more than 1.56 meetings, right? What is the alternative way that you would allocate that resource? Would you allocate it to something else? And if somebody can say, yeah, my reps use email and they get three meetings per hour. And I would say, okay, so that's interesting. They probably work actively six hours a day. So they must be getting about 18 meetings a day. And that's a, if I multiply that by 20, that's about 360 a month. Is that what they're tagged to do is to get 360 meetings a month? And it's like, uh, no, no, the number is more like 15 or 18 or 20, right? So if I look at my reps top to bottom yesterday, this is just my SDRs, Sal Guliano got three meetings yesterday. Evan Washington got five. Multiply those by 20. So Sal, 
60 meetings a month at this pace, right? And that is, my people run at a pace of, as my own team using Connect and Sell, of 2.47 meetings per day. That's their goal. And they hit that goal. So multiply 2.47 by 20, it'll do 2.5 because it's easier. You get about 50 meetings, 50 meetings set per month, right? That's pure cold calling. So that to me is the metric. And folks look at conversion rates. They look at dial to connect ratios. They look at a bunch of stuff that kind of interesting. But the real question is how many meetings per hour are you rep setting? That's kind of the question. I'm going to start at the top of the funnel. So the 60 million to 3 million, that says 20 dials gets a conversation in your model. What should I, if I'm doing this internally, number one, what should I expect for my dial to connect rate? And how critical is, and I guess it's a rhetorical question, the quality of the data? Because I see so much time being wasted on bad phone numbers or maneuvering the phone tree. So what's the goal for dial to connect? And then we're going to go to that connect conversation to getting a meeting. Yeah, sure. Well, your dial to connect goal is whatever it is, because it depends on what titles you're calling and what size companies. So ours yesterday, we we're calling VPs of sales, and we were targeting yesterday companies with $50 million of revenue and above. So VP sales, uh, first day of the month, by the way, could be a little different. And our dial to connect was 22.5 to one. So 22.5 dials to get a connect. The average across kind of everybody out there, if I exclude those that are just trying to reach a live human being, they're actually, this is dial to connect with target, not dial to connect with human, very, very different concepts. So that dial to connect in the great wide world right now is actually right on this number. It's just about 23 to one, but the averages mean nothing. You gotta get your own numbers. You gotta actually do it and measure it. Here's one of the issues. Who's going to actually correctly report the connect that it's to a target? Well, your rep isn't going to do that because they're not motivated to do that. If you're motivating them to do more dials, then they're going to shade it one way, right? And if you're motivating them to do something else, like get more meetings, it might be shaded another way. Like they're only going to call people that they know and they're going to basically, they're not cold calling, they're having meetings, right? They're going to cherry pick. But this is non-cherry picked cold calling about 22, 23 dials to get a connect. Now, follow-up calls are a different matter because once you've spoken with somebody, you have them in a special cohort called people who answer the phone. Answering the phone is a behavioral habit or trait or characteristic of people. It's not like, oh, at random, everybody answers the phone some. I, I answer the phone almost every time it rings, except I'm almost always in meetings. So therefore, my phone answering behavior looks kind of like a non-answerer, except I'll take two cold calls a day if I can get them. I, I don't usually get two a day, but I can, right? So, so you get a cohort of people who've answered the phone before. Dial to connect in that world is about 11 to one. That's all called the busyness of dial to connect. They're still busy 10 times out of 11, right? Again, if you don't segregate your follow-ups and then actually call people that you've spoken with before, whether they hung up or not, people you know answer the phone, then you won't get the you won't actually get a proper average in the first place because the real average is it's roughly higher than twenty three for pure cold because it's hard to find pure cold it's a little bit higher and it's much much better much lower for people that you have demonstrated answer the phone you also at that point have gotten rid of all the bad phone numbers you know all the crap that's out people have changed jobs and all that so that's one of the things we do at Connect and Sell we cleanse your list automatically in the background, 
Well, we're dialing it for you. I have 600 people doing this right now. That's how I can get, get do the stuff, right? 600 people can do a lot of cleansing. So I'd like to take us more to the people side, a little bit away from the data here, because as we all know, finding really talented XDRs, BDRs is difficult. And finding people who thrive in this kind of environment is specialized. So Chris, share a little bit about from both sides, from the hiring perspective, how do you make sure you're, you're recruiting the right people that will thrive in this environment? And then a little bit of advice and coaching to someone who is thinking about this type of a career. Mm. You know, what should they look at internally to establish if they really are going to enjoy it and be successful? Yeah, I think what you're looking for is a, is a good voice. People sound different from each other and people who are pretty flat in their tone have a hard time singing, singing the script, so to speak. It is a song. Most of the information is carried in the tone. Very little is carried in the words. If you think about it, you're hiring somebody who's going to have a very important seven second interaction with somebody. During those seven seconds, 140,000 bits will come out of their mouth and go into somebody's midbrain right through their ears. 140,000 bits. How many emails is that? Emails about 5,000 bits. Do the math. That's hundreds of emails they're going to jam into somebody's head in seven seconds. The way they do it is through tone. It's not through words. The words carry the tone along, so to speak. So think of it like this. The script is like a surfboard. It knows how to go through the water, but you've got to balance on it. Your tone is the artistry, the balance, the athleticism that lets you cut that board through the wave, right? So you have somebody else shape the surfboard. Only an idiot shapes their own board or a master. Your SDRs are not masters, so why turn them into idiots? And uh, so you got to give them a good script. And here's what's funny. If you don't have a good script and you're hiring, you're dead anyway. You're dead. If you don't have a psychological journey, an emotional journey that you can take that prospect on reliably, it doesn't matter who you hire. Now you're just getting lucky. Every once in a while, you get somebody who is so skilled, they can get people to do things, you know, even though they ambushed them. So it starts actually, your hiring starts with a good script. Script's easy. It's published. It's easy to learn. I teach it all the time. There's a bunch of them out there, but make sure you got a good script. Then when you go to hire somebody, you got a good voice, you think they're coachable, you're guessing about a bunch of stuff. We call it, put them in the seat. And this is one of the things we love to use connect and so forth. Put them in the seat, have them spend an hour and listen to them. And you know they got the script. Anybody can learn a script. By the way, you've just onboarded that person. So now once they say, yes, I really want to work with you, well, your time lag before you put them to work is zero. You actually already have them working. And that's really the key to hiring SDRs, et cetera. Their research capabilities are irrelevant. In fact, I think scattering research to the winds, taking your strategy and saying to a bunch of 24-year-olds, why don't you turn our strategy into an actual market definition in the form of a list. Why don't you do it? We just can't be bothered over here, you know, turning our strategy into actual targets. We think that's a better job for a 24-year-old who's motivated by getting meetings somehow or something like that. So if you don't want to abdicate your strategy to others, which some people like to do, but if you don't like doing that, now you're just down to, they have a great voice, are they coachable? And are they willing to go back into the fray after they get slapped because they will get slapped. They will get slapped. And you know why reps don't like navigating phone trees? It's not the phone tree, which is boring. 
It's their mom. They're going to encounter a gatekeeper at some point, and that gatekeeper will evoke their mother inside of them, and their mother is now rejecting them. That's actually the core reason why people, they're not afraid of cold calling per se, but they sure don't like mom to say that they're, you know, bad boy, go away, bad girl, go away. They're not looking for that, but that's what they're going to get. Now we take that away. So now we're down to the simplest, simplest thing, which is, you know, talk to real prospects. What do you sound like? What do you sound like? Now, the greatest that you can hire turn out to not be 24-year-olds. They turn out to be 65-year-olds. If you want great SDRs, there's a population out there that is happy and hungry to be your SDR, and they actually know how to work, and that's people in their 60s and 70s. The best SDR team we've encountered in the last, I think, probably 10 years is three people ranging from 58 to 76 years old in Vermont. And what they were doing was setting appointments for security for medical devices in hospitals. Very hard sell. And they were, they were setting meetings at about a 22% conversation to meeting rate. And they learned the product by actually reading the script. They still, none of them are into what the product does. They took that company, I believe, they built $38 million of pipeline in six months. The company was acquired for $400 million six months after that group started doing stuff. Look at populations out of the box. And the big out of the box population is people in their 60s and 70s. Also a fair amount of usually women at home who are taking care of kids and they're looking for something to do while the kids are at school or whatever. There are so many great voices out there. And you know it when you hear them, you know it. And so put them in the seat and, and, and see whether they can stand the frame. So, Chris, it's funny, as you were saying that, first of all, for all those HR professionals in our listening audience, Chris Beal connected Sal. <laughs> I'm just kidding about the HR thing, but I actually have something written down here, which is, it actually says, age-old question. So that's appropriate with this line of conversation. What is the purpose of that first call? Is it to do a little bit of discovery, a little bit of qualification, or is it to get the meeting? Yeah, the purpose is actually simple. It's to get trust. In order to dominate markets, you have to get folks in the market to trust you. You got to get 50% plus one to buy from you, which is why you need to control the list. Then you got to get you know them to trust you. You're going to harvest that trust over an average of three years. Why? Because three years is about the replacement cycle for most B2B offerings. So everybody that you talk to is randomly in a different part of that replacement cycle. That is, if they just bought a solution to the problem you solved yesterday afternoon, you can't sell to them now, but you're pretty smart if you talk to them once a quarter. So when they're ready to buy, they buy from you. That's pretty simple, right? How do you do that? I call it paving the market with trust. So the first seven seconds are the game. After that, the bonus prize is a meeting. If they'll take a meeting, now you're getting a signal back that says your actual message resonates. So trust is human, has nothing to do with what you're selling. The meeting has something to do with what you're selling, but you can't say what you're selling because you'll kill the curiosity cat and they won't, they'll say we're set. By the way, here's an error anybody can make in a cold call. Feel free to make it. Most people do. Just tell them what category of product you're selling, what category of solution you have, and wait and see what happens. And this is what will happen 99 out of 100 times. You get a very polite, you get a relaxed voice immediately. Oh, 
you just offered them a way out of the conversation. Remember, that's their goal. They want to get out of this conversation with their self-image intact. And all they have to do now is just wait for you to finish. And they say, thanks, Ray. You know what? We're set. And you're done. Because you can't answer we're set. What's the, uh, that's an objection. Then. How do you come back? Like, no, you're not. Well, yes, I am. No, no, you're not. Okay, now you're in the third grade playground, tussling in the dirt with somebody. My daddy's smarter than your daddy. No, he's not. Yes, he is. No, he's not. So that is uh, the purpose of the cold call is to get trust. The bonus prize is to get a meeting. And the way to blow it is to sell to them. And no one on earth can execute any amount of discovery, which is seeking a confession without giving the impression they're selling. Therefore, you must never go into any amount of discovery or you'll blow the trust, which was the actual purpose of the call in the first place. Reps get greedy. Reps overreach. Reps want to skip steps. Why? I don't know. It seems good, right? Why actually go through the process of dating somebody and getting to know them and all that when you can just walk up to them and say, want to marry me? Right? Might work. Not with anybody you want to marry, mind you, but hey, you know, could work, right? So reps tend by personality to, we tend to hire impatient people as reps because we, we think that that's an engine. We think that's a motor. And it takes patience. You got to go through the steps. And step one, get trust and be happy you got it. You won 100% of the time. Step two, Get a meeting through curiosity. Wow. Okay, that's pretty good. Step three, reschedule the meeting when they don't show up because now you have the moral advantage over them and take advantage of the fact that you know they answer the phone. That's it. Then hold the meeting. And by the way, keep your promise. Whatever you promised them to get the meeting, keep your promise in the meeting. Otherwise, your voice will sound wrong when you're setting the meeting because you'll know you're lying. Hey, Mark, can you believe it? We already are past our kind of goal of 30 minutes, but I'd love for you to kind of bring us home with one last topic or question you'd like to get Chris's perspective on. Thanks, Ray. Yeah, so Chris, I need to go back to the new technologies that are out there. I'd love just your thoughts on products like Gong, Chorus, Aviso, Conversational Intelligence. What are those products capable of doing in helping all of this that we're discussing? Uh, what types of data do they taint by having this, if, if any? And do you leverage those tools within Connect and Sell? I love all those products. I mean, they're conversation-centric products. Uh, our tagline is conversations matter. You better be doing everything you can with the data coming from conversations, especially the stuff about the human voice. And you can only really get to the human voice by listening, but those products will let you do things like index into a conversation through the transcript. I spent four hours in chorus yesterday, not analyzing cold calls, but actually analyzing a series of meetings that some of my customer success people had had with a specific team. And I wanted to get a sense of the emotional flow of that relationship over about a six month period. I could index right into the part of the conversation where the emotions were evident, shall we say, in the voices, just by reading down the, the transcript. So those things are fantastic. We integrate with all of them at Connect and Sell. We actually just shove the link to the recording up into Salesforce or HubSpot or whatever, and they get picked up from there and life is good, right? Interoperability is so easy now, it's ridiculous. Actually, what I really think is interesting is the sequencers, uh, the outreaches and all of you know, sales lofts and so forth. We work with all those too. And here's something we know that I don't think most people know. When you send somebody a cold email, 
you have a microscopic chance that it's going to get their attention and get past their kind of physical and psychological filters, right? They've got filters of all kinds to keep email out of their, their selves. When you speak with somebody and you send them an email that says, thank you for the conversation, they open it 100% of the time. Now think about what that does to your outreach sequence and your sales life cadence. Right? You now have got a new way of opening those mechanically, interestingly enough, by opening with a conversation rather than a dial. A dial literally means nothing to the prospect. It didn't happen. So why something that didn't happen is considered a step in a sequence or a cadence is entirely beyond me. It's like walking by the front of the bar and saying, yeah, I, I think she likes me. Like you're out of your mind. You walked by in the front of the bar on the street and, you know, there's there's a person in there you're interested in. You look in the other direction and go, I think she likes me a little more. I walked by. I walked by. <laughs> so my next step is to ask her to marry me. You know, I mean, come on. That we do it because we can't think of anything else to do. It's like, oh, I got to have call steps in the sequence. No, you, you need conversation steps, but you can't get them. So if you want to juice the return on investment of your digital outreach, put all of your digital outreach into the envelope, the warm blanket of a relationship by opening with a trust building conversation. So now I have trust. Now I send you an email from a trusted person. What do I have to make sure I don't do? Blow it by selling to you. What does it reps always do? They blow it by selling to you, right? So it's about a 14x improvement, 14 times higher response rate on that email that says, thank you for the conversation compared to the email with the trick line about the alligators or, you know, whatever. I mean, Grant Cardone sends me like 370 emails a day. Some of them are threatening, like Chris, some say I'm an idiot. I'm going to fail. All these trick subject lines, right? I know Grant really loves me. I really do. He just has to say a bunch of crap in those subject lines to try to get my attention. But if he just call me and get lucky enough to talk with me, and Grant, you would, it would be your best day, I tell you. Then, uh-huh. hey, that email, that next email, from, I'm going to open that thing because he says, thank you for the conversation. What am I going to do? Huh? I'm going to open it. So there is a magic relationship between conversations, but not between calling and digital. And this is where I think everybody gets it wrong. Cold calling is irrelevant. Cold conversations must be mastered. Sadly, you can't get them without cold calling. We do the cold calling. You have the cold conversations. Eh, Maybe something good will happen. Awesome. So cold calling is a necessary evil to get to what matters and conversations matter. And unlike Grant Cardone, who will 10x you, you can 14x with one piece of advice you gave, Chris. So 60 million dials, 3 million conversations, 0.5 meetings per rep hour, all this data. Chris, can you leave us with that one piece of advice that that CEO or CRO out there is saying, man, I've got a pipeline problem. What's that one piece of advice that people are going to go away and think that Chris, I got to think about what he said. Yeah, my advice is, frankly, and this is going to sound self-serving, try it. I mean, we offer a free test drive for a reason. People don't believe that you can use the human voice to dominate markets. I'm on podcast episode 111 or whatever, my podcast, which is called Market Dominance, guys, and it's about one thing. You can mathematically dominate any market you choose to B2B by using conversations strategically. It's straightforward to do. There's nothing to it, but you don't believe it. And the only way to believe it is to try it in your own shop. And that's we offer that for basically a full day of production. 
Some people have made millions of dollars that day. It's kind of like a lottery ticket. Some people go, oh, we don't know what we're talking about, which is equally valuable. So that's my advice is open your mind to something you already know, which is the human voice is the most powerful weapon in the world of B2B sales. It's how you get to trust and, you know, apply that. And, and yeah, listen to all this other stuff that's out there, but let's face it, cheap stuff engenders noise and all digital stuff is cheap. That's why people like it. It's inexpensive. You're not going to dominate markets with inexpensive approaches. You just aren't. Awesome. Ray, will you bring us home? I'm happy to. Well, that's unfortunately a wrap to today's episode of Selling the Cloud. And to our listening audience, if you're enjoying the guest and the topics we discussed, like we did today with Why Conversations Matter with Chris Beal, it would mean the world to us to go ahead and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app and provide us that five-star rating and even comment on how we can make our episodes even better. Chris, thank you so much for being our guest today. Ray and Mark, it's awesome to be here. Mark, it's always a pleasure to co-host with you and everyone out there. Enjoy selling in the cloud. Thank you all. 